Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. This is Sunday Edition with Anthony, a news magazine show featuring human interest, in the spotlight, movers and shakers, and the news and happening that affect all of us in and out of the ACB community. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Sunday Edition. I am your host, Anthony Corona, and we are here every Sunday on ACB Media 1 at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. And you can catch it on all major podcasts right after the show ends, thanks to the wonderful work of my executive producer, engineer extraordinaire, Mr. Byron Lee. Welcome back to Sunday Edition. How you doing? Hey, hey, hey. How's it going? I'm good. It's going well. It's going well. So I'm going to do a couple of announcements. At the end, I'll ask you what's going on with NextGen, um, and we're going to break them up. Um, I'm going to go first with the Guide Dog Users uh, Holiday Auction, and um, I'm sorry, Holiday um, Fundraising, which is either a wreath or a centerpiece. They're both very beautiful items. They are, you know, scented, et cetera, et cetera. They are $45. You can go to um, GDUI's website and click on um, one of the two. They are also doing another fundraiser. So please check those out. I know Margie was gonna tell us a little bit about the holiday auction. Margie? All right, Byron. In the meantime, what's going on with Next Generation? Well, uh, we are always busy at ACB Next Generation. Um, we are about to have our elections. Uh, so we're going to be electing new board members in a few weeks here. Um, we are also doing uh, an audiobook uh, discussion in late November for Saturday Night Live. So the title of the event is uh, the audiobooks that we love and where to find them. So we're going to be talking about your favorite audiobook apps. Uh, maybe there are some apps out there that are less known. You know, everyone knows about Audible and Bard, but there are some other apps that exist out there to help you uh, acquire and find audiobooks. And so we'll be talking about that. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's always busy at uh, ACB Next Generation. We hope that you will check us out and join us. Well, speaking of elections, um, Blind Pride International is also holding elections on November 21st, which will be our annual business meeting. Um, and so if, you, if folks are interested, BPI is holding their candidates forum this evening at five o'clock. Boy, do we have busy days today. Me, you and I, Mr. Byron. Um, and what's going on for Fun Zone later on? Well, uh, I am I am very, very busy today because I have some podcasts that are due today. I, I run a small business where I edit podcasts. Um, and so I've got one that's due um, this morning and it's not done yet. So I got to get that out. Um, so I'll be cramming that in between this and the candidates form. And then uh, tonight on the Fun Zone, we are doing a random grab bag of comedy and uh, novelty records, which is uh, our usual theme. You know, we always do comedy and novelty, but usually we have a theme. Last week we did Halloween. Uh, this week 
I, I figure we've done themes for the last couple of weeks. It's time just to take requests and kind of play some random, some random stuff that doesn't always fit into a theme. So that's what we're doing tonight. Awesome. Did you, have you created a web, a web page for the business yet? Yeah. Um, so my podcasting uh, editing business is at superblink.org. And there's a funny story behind that because um, my friend Sarah and I were um, at a uh, a blindness uh, convention and somebody was at the podium talking about how in their small town, their paper had decided they wanted to write an article about how amazing they were. <laughs> and they said, I'm not a super blink or anything. It's, it's not special that I can pour my own coffee. And so we started going back and forth going, Oh, we need to make t-shirts that have like the Superman logo, but it says super blink. Um, and so from there spawned the name of the business. Nice. Well, I know that, um, I know that you've worked with some uh, pretty cool people so far. So our fingers are crossed. And if you want to get in touch with Byron for some um, audio editing, podcast editing, hit him up at Superblink. All right, Margie, did you ever hear back from Leslie on the exact dates? And if not, mm-hmm. I know that they are recording a promo that I will be playing next week. And you'll be hearing on lots of the um, uh, ACB media shows. Margie, what did Leslie come back to us with? I have not heard back. So All I, right. Thank you. If she, if she texts you during the show, please feel free to just take a, a quick moment and a break in the conversation and let folks know about the auction. But we're going to jump into the topic at hand today. Um, this is our, technically, it's really our fourth conversation about mental health, but it's third in the series of, of opening up as roundtables. Um, I really want to start off first and foremost by thanking and, and basically elevating Margie up to co-host status today because she really put in most of the work behind the scenes between the BPI, um, full social and various family things as well as a wedding and all kinds of stuff. I really needed some help with organizing this show and Margie stepped up like a trooper and really put it together for us. So um, Margie, first and foremost, thank you so much. I wanted to start out with something that I heard a couple of years ago, and um, it really stayed with me. Um, It's no secret. I've talked about the fact that I've been in and out of therapy um, over, I would say, maybe the last 10 years. um, I've had three separate instances of of going to therapy. Um, Back when I was in college, I had had... um, an anxiety issue and, and a few other things. Um, unfortunately, at that time, or maybe it was the college that I was at, but you know, their answer was to immediately after talking for about twenty minutes, uh, prescribe me Xanax. And um, you know, I, I stayed with that for maybe two or three months, but I didn't like how I felt. I didn't like who I was, and you know, checking in once every couple of weeks just to make sure you know, medically that I was okay, really wasn't helping me at all. So I I found a really good therapist at that time and um, learned a lot about what they call triggers, what would trigger, you know, my anxiety or my, um, I don't want to call it aggression, but I would get annoyed and snap at people often, Um, you know, and that really wasn't somebody that I wanted to be. But um, anyway, I'm making a very, uh, a very small story longer than it needs to be. I was told when I went back to therapy about 10 years ago, um, because I was really kind of feeling um, hesitant and not really wanting to 
um, be public, most definitely not wanting to be public about the fact that I was reaching out for, for someone to talk to for a little bit of help organizing my thoughts and feelings and trying to figure out how to be the person I wanted to be rather than the person that I found myself being more often. And the therapist said to me, and, and I've heard it in other places, but the therapist said to me that some, you know, it's, there's no shame in asking for help, which, you know, we hear that all the time. Um, but more importantly, that therapy is something that I should look at, not as I was coming to fix a problem or to fix myself, but like maintenance that, you know, we can't have a running car for a long period of time if we don't change the oils, if we don't change the tires, if we don't maintain the brake fluid and all the other things that we put into the car. You know, if we don't wash the dishes, eventually, not only are we going to have a full sink, but we're going to have a smelly kitchen, you know, we're going to have bugs and all kinds of, you know, so sometimes, you know, therapy and 12-step programs and things, all of the other things we're going to talk about today can be more about maintenance and more about making the person that you want to be, the person that's inside you that you know you can be, helping clear the way so that person can keep walking forward without obstacles in their path. So I wanted to open the show that way because we've had the conversation about the stigmata of of people who are addressing their mental health, people who have not yet addressed their mental health, um, I don't think it's just this country. I think that there are lots of places around the world where it's very um, frowned upon to admit that you need help. And so hopefully with these series of conversations, we will shine a light and maybe inspire a few folks who may be afraid to reach out or who are in processes, who haven't necessarily been public about it, or maybe just to make them feel better a little bit. So Margie, thank you so much, like I said, for helping us put this together. I'm going to ask you to introduce our guests one by one. Right. Well, thank you, Anthony. Um, delighted to be here and delighted to help out. I do want to make one announcement, however, and I will make it at the end. Um, you will find out today and learn from some of us that are in various 12-step programs. I'm in Alcoholics Anonymous. And um, I, on Thursday nights, every Thursday, um, we host a, we, we call it an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, but it's really turned into a 12-step meeting for all different types of 12-steppers. It's an um, ACB um, event. And it's every Thursday at 5 p.m. Eastern, and it's on the Thursday schedule. So I'd like anybody who, who might think that they would benefit from that group to please come and join us and determine if you would. Um, I'd like to... Margie, before you introduce the, the guests, all the, I don't know if I should call them rules, but all of the guidelines that apply to 12-step meetings, everybody agrees when they come into the room to, to abide by those, right? Absolutely. And everything that is said in a 12-step in a meeting is totally confidential. So I can't say that, oh, guess who I saw in the meeting? Tom Jones. Nope, we don't talk about anybody in the meeting or anything of what anybody has said once the meeting is closed. And that's traditional throughout all the 12-step programs. Awesome. So who do we have up first, Margie? 
I'm, I'm, I'm extremely excited. So um, unfortunately, one of our guests could not be here today, and there's a very slight possibility she might join us later, and so I'll introduce her then. We have Lucy Edmonds, who will be speaking about her experience with drugs and alcohol. And we have Pam Shaw, who will be speaking about her experience with overeating and Overeaters Anonymous. And then we have Lisa Gordon Cushman, who will be speaking about her experience with depression and anxiety. And I can contribute about alcoholism as well. And I can contribute about anxiety. Um, on our trip to Colorado, there was one point where we were all in an elevator and the whole group almost saw me have an absolute full out panic attack. But I was able to pull it under control. Thank you, Anthony. Back to you. Yeah. Well, you did quite well pulling it back together, though, for about 70 seconds or so, I thought, if they don't get those doors open, it's going to get hot up in here. <laughs> <laughs> but um, Lucy Edmonds is up first. Lucy, thank you so much for being brave enough to come and speak to us on Sunday edition. Well, thank you, Anthony, and thank you, Margie, for choosing me to speak on this topic. And actually, I don't consider it a matter of bravery. I consider it my pleasure and my privilege to impart to you my experiences and anything I can teach someone who is struggling with addiction the way I have. So first of all, <clears throat> I guess I'd like to give a little bit of a <laughs> real general short overview of 12-step programs um, as a rule. I, I could speak for two hours on, on NA and AA each. <laughs> but um, <clears throat> so 12-step programs are considered to be, uh, excuse me, my braille display just Okay, <laughs> sorry. Are, are considered to be mutual aid uh, nonprofit organizations for the purpose of recovery from substance addictions, behavioral addictions, and compulsions. So, Alcoholics Anonymous was uh, formed in 1935 by basically two persons Bill Wilson, known as Bill W., w. and yeah. Bob Smith, known as Dr. Bob. And it was the first 12-step program. Um, and since that time, dozens of other organizations have been derived from AA's approach to address problems as varied as drug addiction, compulsive gambling, and overeating, just to name a few. All 12-step programs utilize a version of AA's suggested 12 steps, first published in the 1939 book, Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, the story of how more than 100, uh, basically it was men in the first edition, and it's since changed to people have recovered from alcoholism. And this book is also referred to as the big book. Um, basically, the process involves admitting that you can't control your alcoholism, compulsion, or addiction, coming to believe in a higher power that can give strength, and examining past errors with the help of a, a sponsor who is an experienced uh, member of the group, 
and making amends for those errors and learning to live a new life with a new code of behavior and helping others who suffer from the same addiction or compulsion. So Narcotics Anonymous was formed by a guy named Jimmy Kinnon and addicts who could not relate to the specifics of alcohol addiction. At that time, AA was pretty exclusive for members with solely the addiction to alcohol, although this practice has changed dramatically today to include those with other addictions or compulsions. There are several fellowships that have been separated from NA to help with specific addictions such as cocaine, crystal meth, and marijuana anonymous. NA also has its own quote-unquote big book, <laughs> although they don't actually call it that, um, but it is also uh, a history of many people who have uh, joined recovery and their stories. So there are fellowships of these two programs all over the world. So just about anywhere you go, you can be connected with a group if you need to. And as Marjorie, oh Marjorie, sorry, Margie, <laughs> as Margie says, um, we have a recovery group in the ACB community and we meet Thursday evenings. And Margie, that's at that's at 8 p.m. Eastern, not five. <laughs> so it's at 8 p.m. Eastern. <laughs> and <laughs> we, East Coast, West Coast. Yes, yes, I know. I was I was gonna say that, but I thought, ah, well, I'll just wait until I'm up. <laughs> yeah, no so, Biggie and Tupac up in here. <laughs> <laughs> so as Margie says, we do welcome anyone who had who suffers from any type of addiction or compulsion, or you know, uh, just feels the need to join us. So, you know. I guess I'll just say in closing with this part, if I have reached even one person in the community who is struggling with addiction, that makes my heart happy, as Cindy Hollis would say. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. So, so I'm going to ask... Um, I'm going to ask two questions, and I think Margie's saying she's got one too, so that's awesome. The first question is... Um, there's a lot of people out there that get scared away by the higher power piece of 12 steps. Um, and I will admit, I did some research, but thankfully, um, Lucy, you had all the names and dates, which is wonderful. That was the worst part of history for me. Um, but from what I'm to understand, the higher power doesn't have to be God or a Buddha, or it can be if you believe in the force that that makes the earth turn around or the force within yourself that is life force. You don't have to actually be subscribed to a religion to be part of a 12 step program. That is correct? absolutely correct. Yes. And um, I, you know, I, I don't know that that any uh, book has written this. I, I don't know. This is this is my feeling of the difference between AA and NA, one of the major ones anyway, is that most people in AA, and I hate to generalize like this, but I'm going to, most people consider their higher power to be God because they often pray the Lord's Prayer in their meetings. And we do not we do not do that in NA because I feel that it's more of a spiritual fellowship rather than religious. And so 
um, even though AA also says that anyone or anything can be your higher power, my experience has been that most people in that fellowship do believe in their higher power to be God. And I mean, you know, we make jokes about God standing for group of drunks or you know, group of drug addicts or, you know, things like that. But um, <laughs> I, I don't mean to, to make light of that. But um, so that's that's been my experience that, you know, uh, I hate to I, I kind of hate to say anything can be your higher power because somebody asked me once, well, could this table be my higher power? This table that we're sitting at, not the group of people, but the actual physical table. And I said, mm-hmm. I, I think you're, 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 I think you're missing the point here. But anyway, um, so that's my experience. Thanks, Anthony. My second question, Hi. and if you don't, um, if you don't have any information with you, we can always add it to the show notes at a later date. But um, could you tell us a little bit about Al-Anon and the other parts of that? Is are there Al-Anon like groups for the other fellowships? I am not aware that there are Al-Anon type groups uh, with the other fellowships, but I do not have any specific information about that. I just have not heard of them. So this is Margie, and I am aware that Al-Anon frequently people's family members, partners, whatever, um, attend for if they have someone in their family with a, a, an addiction to narcotics and or alcohol. Sure, sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But not specific I mean, groups with those fellowships. That's correct. You know, that's correct. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And, it lists and they're the very powerful, um, you know, sometimes, especially for children, um, you sure. know, teenagers and, and um, you know, it, you know, kids in their early 20s. It's a great space to work out for yourself, you know, how much of this is my responsibility? How much of this, you know, how much love do I give to it? How much do I ignore, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, there's millions of, of topics of conversation, but it's an amazing support for families. I'm sure I should have attended an Al-Anon group when I was growing up because my, my father was an alcoholic and, uh, you know, it was, it, it was a difficult thing to deal with. Although, you know, m- my father was a very good parent in, in, other regard, you know, other regards. Um, but I'm sure Al-Anon would have helped me a lot. Yeah. And my possibly, mom was a functioning alcoholic and I, yeah, I, actually, I, yeah, yeah. My mom was too. and, you know, possibly if I had attended such a group, it, it may have prevented me from, uh, letting things get out of control. I don't know. Who knows? <laughs> we'll never know. Margie, you had so a question, I, right? I have a comment and a question. And, um, I think it's really important to know that alcoholism, all all of the um, topics we're presenting today are considered mental health disorders. And I know that I went through my life and people said, oh, you can just quit drinking. And then when I decided I had an alcohol problem, people go, oh, you don't have an alcohol promise. You don't live with me. You don't know how much I drink. So that's one of the, you, you go to Al-Anon to deal with those of us that are actively drinking or are or, or using drugs or whatever, to learn how to deal with this. And the bottom line is there's nothing you can do. It's all up to us. It's a disease. I do want to take one quick second here and explain the difference um, 
between someone who can have one, two or three glasses of wine versus an alcoholic yes. such as myself. If I have one glass, that turns um, on the button and I have no stop. It is a disease. I crave, 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 crave as soon as I take one sip. So um, that means I will drink until I black out. So generally, we try not to ever drink in our lives. Some people come in and out of the program. I do want to ask Lucy if you're comfortable. I don't want to put you on the spot so you can say no. I want to ask you to talk a little about your own journey with AA and NA and what got you there and how it's helped you, the benefits you have personally gained from it. Sure, sure. Okay, I'll try to make this quick because I'm old, so I've had a lot of life experience. (laughs) 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 And my, um, my addictions started very, very early in life, I believe, although I didn't see it at the time. I started using substances very early in life. Um, as early as age 13, when I started drinking and also smoking cigarettes, which you know is definitely an addiction. And then moving on to marijuana at age 15. And then, you know, going to college and living in a dorm where everything was available when you're walking down the hall, pills, pot, alcohol, all kinds of things. And I, you know, I thought I was just normal when I drank and I drank until I passed out, you know, or was sick. So, you know, I I said, well, everybody's doing that, you know, that's cool. So as my adulthood began, um, I considered myself a social drinker, but I wasn't because like Margie, when I began to drink in an evening, I could not stop. I mean, I was not, I was not satisfied with one or two drinks like most people can do at a party or out for dinner. So I would go home and I would continue to drink for the remainder of the evening alone for the most part. And um, then I, I saw at a very early age or realized, recognized, whatever word you want to use, that I was, I really enjoyed the feeling that narcotics gave me, a feeling of euphoria, a feeling of being able to dull my pain from whatever experience I was dealing with at the time, emotional experience. Um, At age 12, I broke my leg and I was given Demerol and I loved it. And so, you know, from that time on, I thought of different ways that I might, you know, procure these drugs or, or get them, you know, and I, and I never really, I I never really uh, did that much to get them until later on in life when I would go to doctors and I would lie and say I was in pain from one reason or another. I've had a lot of surgeries. So it's like, yes. Okay. So (laughs) then you want to take a kidney score (laughs) (laughs) yeah right i'll donate i'll donate um so probably 15 yeah 15 20 years ago i would say i began to really seek out narcotics other than those that i could purchase or you know that i could get from prescriptions and um people would give them to me um i would buy them and then and then it became you know, just a, a, 
a, a horrible, horrible addiction. And I hit almost rock bottom about, well, seven years, eight months, and uh, what, what, however many days ago. <laughs> <laughs> and um, went into considerable debt due to this addiction. And um, my family finally stepped in. Thank you very much for your support and love. And they, in, they did an intervention and I still denied it to that point. I don't know what you're talking about. Drugs? I don't know what you mean. And, and it took them about four hours to finally convince me that, yeah, you, you, you have a problem. You need help. And I felt at that point that I had nowhere to turn because I had no money. I was about to be kicked out of my apartment. I, uh, I was not using any heat and it was, it was in November. No, I'm sorry. It was in March. Sorry about that. It was in March. And, um, I had not used very much heat that whole winter because I wanted to save money from utilities to buy drugs. I mean, that's, that's pretty much rock bottom. Um, I was able to, to maintain my employment. Thank you very much. Um, and so my family convinced me to enter a treatment program, which was one of the, one of the best I feel. I did, I did some research later and found that it's one of, you know, one of the best in the country, in Michigan anyway. And uh, I was there for 16 days and um, met some really cool people, probably 95 or more percent of their staff is in recovery and uh so they totally get it and then attended an intensive um, outpatient program with family sharing and things like that and uh i couldn't i couldn't have made it without the support of my family and my friends and and things like that so uh that's basically my story i um attended a lot of NA meetings at the beginning, every day. Now I attend two or three a week and uh, love, love, love the ACB Community Recovery Program. So yeah. any questions? I have two more and then um, we'll take a break um, with with Lucy and, and then we'll <laughs> go to our round table. But um, I'm curious if you wouldn't mind sharing with us what was the hardest step for you of the steps? The first one, yeah. <laughs> admitting, yeah. that, admitting yeah. that I had a problem and that I couldn't control it. And my life was unmanageable. I'm like, me? Come on now. I've managed my life so far. No, not. come on now. No, it really. And then, and, and then actually probably the second step also, you know, uh, turning my will and my life over to my mm -hmm. higher power. You know, it's like, no, 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 no. I can't do that. No, no. So, um, yeah, the, those two steps were the, were the hardest for me. And then, yeah, making amends um, came next. And anybody uh, who, even people who do, do not struggle with problems of addiction or compulsion, um, 
taking your personal moral inventory is something that I think any, yes. everyone could benefit from Everybody because yes. my goodness, I tell you, it really gives you an in-depth look at you and your life and yikes, kind of scary sometimes, you know, to see all that. And it's like, Ooh, okay. So that's that. Anthony, I, I, I want to add, I want to add something here. Um, okay. Very, very, very proud of, and I bet most of us on this call is very proud of that are in a 12-step program and those listening, is um, <clears throat> there's a conference every year. And at this year's conference, um, it, it's more kind, I, I'm not talking a conference, I'm talking a working body, it's called GSR, General Services, GSR, what's the R, it's General Services something, anyway, <laughs> here. We, in part of our opening reading, it says men and women, and this year we voted to make that gender neutral, and it now says people. Mm -hmm. Oh, that makes me very happy. That's I why know. I changed that in the beginning. I changed it from men and women to people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. I want to um, just touch on for a second where you spoke about the, the moral inventory. Um, I, I, I find myself often in, in the place of listening to folks. Um, I, I try in, in my life not to give too much advice. I used to tell everybody what they should do and how they should do it um, in my 20s and, and far longer into my 30s than I probably should have. Um, but I, one thing that I do always tell folks that, that you know, will reach out to me in various capacities is write, write your story. Um, it's another way of saying take your personal inventory. Write your story, you, you know, and and then put it away and then go back and, and look at it and, you know, look at it from an editing eye and look at it from, you know, what what did you filter? And, you know, and what are you feeling, you know, now that you've put it away for a couple of days or a week or a couple of weeks, um, you know, and, and that's really a form of, of personal inventory. And you really learn a lot about yourself from doing that. The second question I had for, for you, Lucy, and then we're going to um, move on, um, Margie, I believe Pam is next. But uh, the second question I had for you, I, I love the kind of um, abstract questions. So if uh, you were suddenly transported to one of those other realms and, and you were given, you know, an hour to conversate with uh, Bill and Bob, you know, the, the big uh, Bill W. And, and Dr. Bob. What would you tell them about your journey with with uh, the 12 steps and, and uh, what would you say to them? Well, I guess, first of all, I would thank them for all of their hard work. And <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> if you, um, you know, if, if you ever read the, the big book, the uh, first part of it actually tells both of their stories and um, how alcoholism was was considered, you know, alcoholics were considered in, in those times. And um, really about the only treatment they had was to put people in a psychiatric ward in a hospital. And yeah. so I, I would I would just, you know, thank them for um, developing this 12, you know, 12 step program. And um, I guess I just tell them my story like like they told me theirs and um we could just have a little have a little aa meeting because it only takes two to three people so <laughs> yeah. um, that's what i would do and i and i did want, want to just uh oh gosh i was gonna make a comment now and i forgot what the heck it was oh darn anyway i've talked enough so <laughs> let's take let's let pam talk now thank you so much for sharing everything and stick around we'll do some roundtable and some questions 
Margie, please introduce our next guest. Well, my dear friend and ACB's dear friend, and many of us know this beloved lady, she served in many capacities in ACB, including on the board of director, Ms. Pam Shaw from Pennsylvania is here to talk with us today about Overeater and Overeaters Anonymous. Welcome, Pam. Thank you so much, Margie. I cannot tell you and Anthony and everyone else how excited I am to be here because I think not only am I going to have a chance to share some things about uh, compulsive overeating and food addiction, but this is helping me as a compulsive overeater to be able to tell my story and to share with others. And what I hope is that what I will bring to everyone today is some encouragement and some new information. Just to get started, I want you to know that Overeaters Anonymous was founded by a lady who we call Roseanne S. Because in our tradition, as was said, we only go by our first name and last initial. Believe it or not, Overeaters came out as the result of a Gamblers Anonymous meeting. Roseanne attended it, and when she was listening to the stories, instead of hearing one about gamblers, she realized she was hearing her story, which was about overeating. She had some knowledge of the step 12-step programs and knew that the model of 12 steps would really serve her well and perhaps even others to deal with what she realized was really happening to her. So she got some friends together and in January of 1960, the first Overeaters Anonymous meeting was held in, believe it or not, Los Angeles, California. And so today, Overeaters Anonymous has close to seven thousand, seven thousand separate group meetings like Alcoholics Anonymous. You can go to a meeting of Overeaters Anonymous 24 hours a day. Many were virtual even before the pandemic, but now there are even more. And Overeaters Anonymous groups are in 75 countries. So today we are looking at close to 80,000 members worldwide who are using the 12 steps as a way to get freedom from compulsive overeating and to have new life, new life that you can only find in recovery. A few things about compulsive overeating. What we know about eating is that, first of all, it is a compulsion and it is the result and acts like an addiction. And so that's very important because everyone has to eat. We cannot recommend abstinence in Overeaters Anonymous because you would soon die. The other challenge with a food-related addiction is that um, not only must we eat, but there is social acceptance of overeating everywhere. You know the drill around us. You yep. can always get something to eat. And the points that I want to make about it is, first of all, not only is it accept, socially acceptable, okay, but food is affordable, it's available, and it's accessible, and so that becomes one of the real challenges. One of the things we try to help people with, and I think this is why Overeaters Anonymous is um, really, um, it functions in many, many ways that, um, the same ways that Alcoholics Anonymous functions in, is number one is the acceptance of what you have if you are truly a compulsive overeater, you have a chemical addiction. 
There are chemicals once introduced in your body change you. And also not only, and this is sort of our OA language, not only do you have a chemical allergy, but you also have a disruption of the mind. So that when you eat something, these chemicals, instead of stopping, you get started. And that's why even though each of us have personal stories relative to our eating challenges, and everybody can't go by the same thing, but we do know some things for sure. And for a true compulsive eater, you cannot start because you will not stop. And that becomes a challenge for a lot of people. The thing that I think, too, that that makes Overeaters Anonymous and coming to this as a compulsion, and for me personally, as a compulsive overeater, is I recognize that it is my body, it is my mind, and it is my spirit. And I want to revisit this discussion of spirit because a lot of people, when they hear spirit, they immediately go to religion. And they immediately go to a faith-based something. But we are all, part of all of us, we do have a spirit. And to address the, to fail to address the issues of the spirit will actually make it impossible for you to experience the kind of new life um, recovery that all of us look for. So for me, we need to talk about this more. We need to help people to come in. I am part of the ACB group. I'm not ashamed to say that, but it's a welcoming place. It's a wonderful place. And I've done some research, and those of you in the other organizations, feel free to connect, correct me. I have not been able to find one blindness and 12-step meeting like we have in ACB. I haven't found it. They do have some, yeah, they have some that say, you know, people with disabilities or people with medical conditions, but I haven't found what we do. So I'm real happy to be here and I'm certainly open to any questions and I plan on getting personal when need be. So feel free. So I definitely, definitely, I'm going to ask everybody what they feel comfortable sharing of their personal story. Um, But I want to go back to what you were talking about a couple of seconds ago, because I Mm -hmm. I did do some research um, and some, you know, I wanted to freshen up some stuff that I already knew. And I definitely was surprised by some of the stuff that I came across. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the chemical of it all. Mm -hmm. Um, I believe they're called mu receptors in the brain. Right. And, and so whether it's alcohol, food, sugar, especially sugar, mm-hmm. um, you know, but uh, substances, et cetera, et cetera, these mu receptors will replicate. And the more that, and they're giving you, they're sending pleasure signals mm-hmm. throughout your brain and, and ostensibly throughout your body. Mm-hmm. And so they will then replicate um, almost like, you know, we've heard this about the virus, you know, the, the coronavirus, it gets in and it replicates yeah. and, you know, and it's all, it's sort of the same kind of process in your brain, only they don't ever go away. Right. They that's don't, true. they don't go away. So once, once that's what begun, what begins the addiction, when, mm-hmm. when you've gone to a level of mu receptors that is beyond the normal capacity your brain now is telling you that you need more to achieve that feeling that you were searching for, you know, the first time, the second time, yeah. the third time, and they don't ever go away. Crazy. And there's, and, <laughs> yep. There's an absolute scientific chemical explanation That's correct. for that. It's, I hate when people say, 
oh, you know, why don't they just diet or why don't mm-hmm. they just stop drinking or mm-hmm. they're spending their money to go get such and such and such on the corner or from a doctor, et cetera, et cetera. They don't have to do these things. No, they don't have to do them, but their brain is telling them that they need to. And there's Absolutely. a big difference between the have to and the need to. Absolutely. Because, for example, now my chemicals are salt, oil, bleached flour, alcoholic-like substances, and sugar. When I came off of the sugar, I didn't have any other kind of drug-based experiences. When I came off of the sugar, I had been around heroin addicts before because of the kind of work I was doing, and I had been around even babies who were withdrawing. But I didn't understand what sugar was doing to me until I got off of it. And I had withdrawal symptoms really bad. Headaches, I had the shakes, um, I was irritable. Well, sometimes I am irritable, but I was more irritable. And (laughs) I just was dysfunctional for about 48 hours. I did not know, and you you know, there's a a study out there that they said, um, this is experimental and I have my feelings about what we do to animals, but basically what they had done is given rats cocaine. And then when they put the rats, the sugar in front of the rats and the cocaine, the rats chose the sugar. So sugar in and of itself is actually more addictive than cocaine. Yep. So Margie, did you have any questions before we ask Pam to share whatever of her personal story she'd like to share? I do not. All right, Pam. All right. First of all, I'm going to say that as a young adult and to, to now, I have probably been in every diet program imaginable. I did it all because I went from place to place to place and I did weight-based and exercise-based. I did mental health-based, you name it. I counted points, calories, carbs, anything you can think of. I was trying to count it. And I went, you know, did the faith-based programs and all that kind of thing. My challenge was I just couldn't sustain it. I was the person who would lose the weight, who would gain it back, and then some. And the real thing, and I didn't really come to terms with this until relatively recently, was the real long-term damage that I was doing to my body by doing that. And what was really happening with the ingestion of some things we no longer call food. One of the challenges I had was because I am the adult child of an alcoholic, I had learned some behaviors growing up, um, keeping secrets, um, Mm. pretending that you were one thing when you really were another, not dealing with your emotions, dealing with them by food. And keep in mind that I, at the time, I'm not practicing right now, but I was a therapist, Here I was doing therapy, helping people and living in my own kind of world that was problematic. But then one day I realized because listening to my higher power said, what would you tell one of your clients if they were going through what you were going through? And I said, I would tell them to go get some help. And that, along with the conversation with my doctor was what really has helped me for me again, the, um, 12 steps that get it for me are it's, it's the idea that I can focus on my mind. I can focus 
on my spirit, you know, and I can focus um, on my body. But and also I think what's really very, very important is the sense of community and the ability when I'm dealing with those motions, intended emotions and wanting to kind of go towards the food. I got a whole lot of places that I can call a lot of people to whom I can pick up that phone and just talking with them tends to help me to get out of my own head so that I don't go um, to those foods. But again, the social challenges are very, very challenge big for um, a compulsive overeater. And I, I deal with that every day. Yeah, I, I want to ask you before we move on to um, our next guest, I want to ask you one more time if you could mm -hmm. elaborate from, from your own personal point of view or perspective, but there are a lot of folks out there who, who think that the overeating anonymous is sort of a hanger on or, you know, mm -hmm. it's not a real problem. Mm -hmm. Can you speak to that one more time just from your sure. own personal perspective? Sure, absolutely. Because frankly, I was one of those people. I mean, there was a time in my life where I felt like some people, all you have to do is eat less and move more. Why don't you just stop eating? Um, you know, you don't have to eat that, that kind of thing. I believed what the world wanted me to believe, that I didn't mm -hmm. have a problem, that it was mm -hmm. actually other people's problem. Okay. And so I played some of the games, you know, and, and by that, I mean this, I was doing things like people say, oh, we've had so much food today. Why don't you take some home? And I'm saying, okay, I'll take it home, but I'm going to give it to my neighbor. What neighbor? Okay, you know, I was secretly eating all this food. And so, yes, it's easy. Here's one of the things that you can sometimes test yourself on if you're not sure. This is not a great test, but I suggest to you, if you want to know whether or not you are a compulsive overeater, particularly above about some things, just try stop eating it for 48 hours and see how you feel. You know, you may find that you can't stop. You know you should. Your doctor has spoken to you. Um, one of the things, everything I told the doctor hurt. The doctor had one answer. You know, Pam, if you would eat a better diet and if you would just lose the weight, you'd see some of this stuff go away. And, and I, I still feel, Anthony, that deep down inside, because of who we are, most of us, we do have a way of knowing that we have a challenge. But two things stop us, or well, several. One is that maybe we don't know what to do. We don't have the information of where to, to start with, with whom we can speak. But the biggest one that I found that it was true for me, and it may be true for others, was the stigma. Yes. What would people say? <laughs> you know, here I am, a therapist, and you mean you've got an addiction, okay? Or you know better than that. Or, you know, and they'd give me, even when I was first talking to people, they'd give me a little trick, you know, oh, just eat a little bit. As a food addict, as a compulsive overeater, I can't do that. If the trigger goes off, I'm in it. I tried a diet one time. They said, eat this way, you know, for the week. But on the weekends, eat whatever you want, okay? <laughs> My weekend never uh -oh. ended. <laughs> it's, it's already the next weekend. And I, so those things, and, and I think, again, like we, we were saying today, you know, between the stigma um, the things that we go through when we have these addictions, even something like self-hatred. You know, what's wrong with me? Why yeah. can't I stop this? I've read the books and I went to the lectures and da-da-da-da. You can't stop because what you're dealing with is an addiction. 
Yeah. You know, and we're going to touch, we're going to touch a little bit more on that after we hear our next two guests. Um, Anthony, I do have a question. Yeah. So Pam, Mm -hmm. given that we may have a very large audience listening on ACB radio, if somebody's pondering the idea of going, Oh, I'm overweight. Maybe I have a food addiction, but I don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. How would, what would you say to them and how would they find OA? I mean, AA is real easy to find. I don't even know how to find OA. Good question, Margie. Thank you. Okay. Well, there is, here's that one answer that we all love, especially these days. There is a website, OA.org. Okay. You can just type in Overeaters Anonymous. You'll be shown the page. And this site is accessible too, which I like about how to find a meeting and things like that. But what I would hope, Margie, in response to your question, listening to this is come to our group on Thursday evening and let us begin to help you. Or I will say of myself, call me. Call me because everything is not a food addiction. Some people, that's why some of the weight loss programs are successful for some people. By the way, it isn't just weight. It's part of that. It's affecting every area of your life and your body Mm -hmm. and your body. So I would say reach out. And folks out there listening, if, you know, if you have questions for our guests, I give the show email every Sunday. It'll be at the end of this, but it's celebration with my initials, AC, at AOL.com. I will forward anything to any of these wonderful ladies who are sharing their experiences with us. Margie, who's up next? My friend, Lisa Gordon Cushman, will be presenting and talking about her experience with depression and anxiety. And I'm very delighted that, Lisa, you were willing to come and speak about this because well for all of us all of us are really opening up a very private part of our lives and absolutely we're doing it with the intent of sharing this so if other people are traveling these roads they know it's okay yes some might think you're weird or some might just talk say well margie can quit drinking anytime she wants you know, or, you know, if Lisa just got help, you know, and it's not always that simple. So Lisa, thank you so much for being willing to come and talk about this very private part of your life. Absolutely. I'm so happy to be here. My name is Lisa Cushman and I have, I have major depression and generalized anxiety disorder. Um, I was first diagnosed at 17, but probably had them much earlier. Um, It was just at 17 when I was willing to consider medication. And um, I actually, I'm also blind. So I actually consider um, the depression and the anxiety, um, the primary disability and the blindness more of a secondary disability because um, many of the accommodations for blindness are concrete. You know, you can uh, make something accessible or you can get taught O&M or you can use a screen reader. With um, the major depression and the generalized anxiety, it's like there's something in the back of your mind that's constantly making you doubt everything you do and everything you say and everything you hear, whether you know, whether you're okay, whether someone likes you. Um, I have to say that I have the blessing of having a cocktail of medications um, and talk therapy that allows me to work full time and be in a long-term relationship 
and live independently in the community. And I know that's not a blessing that everybody has. And um, I know that, you know, I'm, I'm gonna be on medication for depression and anxiety for the rest of my life. And um, I was very um, averse uh, when I was a teenager, especially, and I've had other times when I've been off medication, um, but I was very adverse to taking medication because I thought that it would turn me into a zombie. I thought that I just wouldn't feel anything, or I thought that I would just be this little, I don't, uh, like this automaton that just thinks everything that society wants you to think. But for me, um, the medication and then coupled with the, with the support uh, from the therapy um, just gives me, um, you know, it, it rounds out some of the lows. Um, um, I've definitely worked, um, dealt with suicidal ideation quite a bit. I've um, attempted suicide twice and been hospitalized twice. And um, um, we knew about it when I was a teenager because, um, like, I would study for tests and I would study for hours, and I would have been to all the lectures. I, I never missed class. I never missed homework because I thought that if I didn't do all the work that I was so stupid that it was the only way that I could ever do um, do okay. And I would, you know, I would write these long essays on, uh, and after the test, you know, I think that I was, that I probably would have gotten an F. You know, even though I, I didn't get a lot of F because I worked really hard and so, and you know, it's it's always going to be a problem in life. All it makes things difficult. I you know, I don't probably will always be surviving rather than thriving. Um, but due to the fact that I'm on the medication and in, in talk therapy and probably will be in talk therapy and on medication for the rest of my life, I can live an independent life and, um, live in the community, um, and be in a long-term relationship and work a full-time 40 hour a week job. Um, so I'm happy to answer any questions that anybody has. Well, I, I, during the research that I, that I did for today's show, something absolutely enraged me. And I'm, I'm wondering if you've had a similar experience. I, I heard from quite a few folks um, from our community, but I also wanted to reach out and, and I spoke to a therapist um, who is very, very 12-step-based um, 12 uh, 12 um, in her approach. And what I, what I, what I heard a lot was that going into various therapies um, and even in some 12 step models. And, and I know that that's, um, you know, it's a microcosm of humanity period. So, you know, good, bad, and ugly everywhere you go. But I heard a lot of folks say that when they were reaching out, a lot of times they were kind of forced to address their blindness or other disabilities mm -hmm. as the root cause of their, um, their mental struggles or, or their substance struggles, et cetera, et cetera. Um, have you ever encountered that in your years? Um, I have, um, I mean, I think for me, it's nuanced. I think, um, you know, being born blind and dealing with a lot of the bullying that I encountered at school and a lot of the rejection and, and, and then just, you know, the day to day, 
of being so different than the norm um, is really tough. But I suspect that um, for me, the the chem- since medication is effective for me, um, that I have a I have a chemical imbalance. Um, where I don't have enough of the neurotransmitters in my brain that keep me from, um, uh, from being depressed and anxious. So that, you know, even if I was born fully sighted, I suspect that I may also have had a mental health disability that required medication. Um, you know, but people can definitely, um, who meet a blind person perseverate on the on the blindness as the only and root cause of, of the, the struggle that they're facing. Yeah. I want to jump in here. Um, there's, there's clinical depression, which is a chemical imbalance. Um, Yeah, that's what I have. And then there's situational depression. Like when we lose a loved one or when a relationship ends, that's a very normal depression. It lasts for a while. We grieve. We move on. But people with um, chemical imbalance, it's, it's a life, and it's a life challenge. It is. It is. Yeah. It really is. Because it's not like, I'm, I mean, um, situations definitely exacerbate it, but um, I will probably, um, as long as I am alive, I will be on medication and will need to be in therapy and do other things like make sure I get enough sleep and uh, my social support and, um, and try to avoid stressful situations. So it is very, because some people will say, oh yeah, I, I was depressed for three or four months and, and then I felt better, you know, like, you know, just, just, just focus on being better and just be more positive. <laughs> but, you know, if you, if you don't have enough neurotransmitters um, in, in your brain, you know, if I don't have enough of the neurotransmitters that produce, um, serotonin and norepinephrine, I mean, you know, no amount of, um, hard work on, on my part to have a more positive attitude will give me back those neurotransmitters. Yeah, exactly. Put you on a plane to Hawaii and all your troubles are over. It just doesn't no. work that way. <laughs> Not for her. <laughs> no, it, it'll be a, it'll be a lot of fun. I, I'll have a great time, but I'll still I still won't have enough serotonin or norepinephrine. Right. Before right. we move on to our next guest, I we were supposed to talk a little bit about um, uh, treatment resistant depression as well. Um, I'm just curious if any of our panelists have any experience in that area or do we need to schedule another show for that? It took me some time to um, find a a cocktail that would be effective. At first they tried me on what, um, you know, psychiatrists tried me on what uh, most people are initially prescribed, which is an SSRI, which is a, mm-hmm. um, so I believe it's selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. So it basically gives you access to more of the serotonin that your brain is not producing. But since my brain doesn't have enough serotonin or, ne- or norepinephrine, you know, it really didn't, you know, solve the problem. And one of the, and one of the uh, medications that I was on made it worse at for the small amount of time that I was on it. So it took me quite a while. Yeah. Well, Anthony, this is Pam. 
Oh, good. (laughs) This is Pam. Okay. As um, a therapist, let me just say this to you um, and to all of us, because I think it's, it's all very, very important. What can happen is something or someone gets labeled as a person who has um, treatment um, resistant depression and it is actually a misdiagnosis. Mm-hmm. So it's very, very important that if you have doubt about anything, get another opinion. It's not unheard of. It's an acceptable mm-hmm. thing to do. Because mm-hmm. if you are treat, if you label that, then you, it w- would be important is that you ask your therapist or whoever's giving you that label to give you something in writing and test it against what you know to be true. Unfortunately, you know, depression is probably the most misdiagnosed uh-huh. of mental health disorders. And I have seen people, and I'm so glad for our guest today giving us some good information because I have seen physicians, meaning medical doctors, not psychiatrists, okay, treating depression. And that person needs to be seen by a specialist so that um, they can receive proper treatment. And I I really don't care what it is. If you're dissatisfied or if you have any questions, be careful of some of the labels because a misdiagnosis leads to mistreatment. That's it for me. Well, Pam, actually stay here for one moment because I actually was going to hit this up after everyone spoke, but since the doors opened, Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you take your car to a mechanic and you don't get the service that you that you were expecting, if the repair is not done well, you're not going to take it back to that mechanic again. But I think a lot of people have fear of basically quitting or firing their therapist and, and saying, you know, for whatever reasons, this isn't working for me. I, I need to explore something else. Could you talk just a, a little bit about that? Yeah, because one of the things um, that I'm very clear about with people, however I'm serving them, is that I should be the person raising with them. If this is not helping you, let's talk about you getting to some place where it can. Or, for example, um, there are people who I have said, let's talk about what's really going on, and maybe we need to do something as part of your therapy is to get you to a 12-step program. So I think it's a therapist's moral obligation to make sure that people are getting what they need and what they want, and don't be so afraid of your reputation and, and even the money that you earn that you will allow someone in treatment that you're really not serving them. Again, for each of us, and I think uh, I was glad that you were enraged by the issue about even confusing, you know, the blindness with some things. I'm sorry to say this, but I'm just going to tell the truth. Many therapists believe that because that's how they're trained. They are trained that people with disabilities are depressed. Now, my friends can drink, right? And they say, oh, well, you know, um, they're just having a good time. Me, she's self-medicating. I don't drink anymore, but she's self-medicating. So there is a tendency to even stigmatize, even in mental health treatment, what blindness really does. Now, there are people who are depressed, but again, we need to be very, very careful and unafraid. I love the example of, of the car. We don't go places where we're not, you go to a restaurant and the food's not good. You don't keep eating there. And I think we have to take that same kind of stance. One more question for both you and Lisa. Uh, I want to come back the next um, the next 
piece of this conversation with Sunday Edition is going to be about verbiage and terminology and, and the way that our society has developed um, languages and and speaking around these these topics. Um, and we all know the phrase happy pill. Um, can you talk <laughs> just a moment or two about the importance of combining you know, treatment as far as medication is concerned with 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 therapeutic sessions, at least in the beginning. Absolutely. Go ahead, Lisa. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, for me, um, I had been, you know, before I was actually willing to try medication, I had been to therapy before and I liked therapy and it was helpful and it did help me to get some get support around the situations. Um, but for me, I, I really need both. Um, I, re- I really need both the, um, both the medication, the, um, the, 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 med- the two medications that I take every day. And then I need the weekly therapy. And then, you know, you know, beyond that, I need the sleep and I need the, you know, human touch and the, mm-hmm. Other endorphins and yes you know that help to reduce the depression so it's often for you know for for many of us um it's not one th- it's not just one thing it might be like um medication and therapy and a church community or medication and therapy and exercise mm-hmm. and a church community um you know most of, you know, it's often a few different, you know, combining a few different techniques to reduce the symptoms of the depression and um, make life more manageable. Yeah. Believe it or not, there are people who um, will tell you have had experience even as um, alcoholics and especially those NA Narcotics Anonymous and even with overeaters of going to doctors and they were clearly overeating, clearly out of control, and were prescribed medication for depression. And um, so there can be people who don't understand. You know, I always say that my clients know more than me, you know, that kind of thing, because there's a lot of misinformation, even in the medical community, even in the mental health community. There's a lot of misunderstanding about how, how all these things work together. I mean, it hasn't been that long that people were saying that you need exercise, you need activity to help with depression and overeating and uh, other addictions, too. So I, I agree with you, Lisa. It's bringing it all together. Wanji, do you have any questions before we introduce our last guest? Well, I want to jump in here with a commercial and then a comment. The ACB holiday auction, the main auction is, I have the date. I do not have the taster. Sunday, November 29th is the ACB holiday auction. I invite you all to come and compete with me because I'm a vicious, bitter when I want something. (laughs) Anyway, um, I just want to step in here and say about our guest that's not here. I I don't want to conclude that she's not getting proper treatment. She has even had shock therapy and that's not working. And so I hope at some point in the future that she'll be able to come on and talk about all the things she's gone through. I'm assuming, I don't know, but I'm assuming the only one that can do shock therapy would be a psychiatrist. So I don't know um, if that's the case. I would presume she's getting proper treatment. However, you can see one psychiatrist and it may not work for you. 
You may have to see two or three. Mm -hmm. in, in the mental health field, I'm a firm believer. I've done extensive therapy myself, and I'm a firm believer. You have to shop around for your uh -huh. therapist. You, I, one of the things I look for in a therapist is I don't want to focus on my blindness. That's not my issue in life. I may have little episodes where I want to talk about something that happened because I'm blind. The bus passed me by twice today and I'm really not happy. But other than that, I'm not living my life based on my blindness. Does it, does it play a role in my life? Yes. But when I go into therapy, it's usually more about relationships or about, you know, something with someone else. Um, and I, I remember telling my therapist at the time that I'm setting a date to quit drinking. And her response to me was, you're not an alcoholic. And that was my mm -hmm. therapy you know, with her. Um, I, um, I, I really want to say, and I know it's so easy to continue the lifelong belief that we all have been given that these are all choices and none of these are yeah. choices. Um, yeah. Most of us that deal with drugs, alcohol, um, I, I can't speak for overeating and that type of stuff, but um, it runs in our family. And um, mm. I come from an extensive family of alcoholics and many of us can be functional. You know, I raised a kid. I didn't drink much at that time. I drank much later, but I raised a kid. I worked full time. And I told my sponsor, my life is working just fine. You know? <laughs> and, yeah. then she, and that's another thing I talk about is sponsorship. Most of the 12-step programs offer sponsors, and a sponsor is kind of like a coach. And if you enter a 12-step program, probably within your first five meetings, you want to find a sponsor because they're going to walk you through the program. I also want to say that the AA Big Book is available from the National Library Service, your local Braille and Talking Book Library, or whatever they call it now. And there's a wonderful one that you can download I have it on my A-Lady, and it's called Joe and Charlie. And it's so much easier to understand the big book if you read them. My sponsor and I are currently reading Joe and Charlie because they talk, it, they talk you through it. And some of the big book is hard to understand. I'll be very honest, at least for me. So that was a valuable tool. I want to jump in here and say something about anxiety. Um, I have never had a history of anxiety, never, ever, ever, until one day I was in an elevator uh, with a bunch of my veterans at the VA, interestingly enough, leaving our support group. <laughs> I ran a support group. I was a blindness expert, and we had a clinical psychologist, and the elevator got stuck, and I went into a full-fledged panic attack, and I have tried every since then to go in elevators and 99% of the time, I'm perfectly okay. If it's very crowded, if the elevator hesitates, I can have a panic attack. One time when I was um, dealing with my absolute chronic pain and, and working, or I shall say, fighting with my employer because it was a work comp issue, I had the worst panic attack I had ever had in my life. I was living in a residential hotel in San Francisco. I was forced back to work. That's just part of work comp. And so I found this great place. 
And I think through all the pain and all the anxiety around the pain and all the anxiety about when is this pain going to quit? I remember going home one night from work and entering my room and the walls started closing in. And I'm telling you, they were really closing in on me. And nobody can tell me they weren't, even though today I know they physically weren't. So the first thing I did is I walked outside of that building and I lit up a cigarette. And things got worse. I, you know, if a cigarette doesn't fix it, nothing is going to fix it for me. And I, I don't smoke anymore. But fortunately, a block away was a hospital. And I, I somehow got myself there. And I was totally out of it. And I was asking people. And I walked in. And there's nobody around. And this was not by choice. I just started screaming, help, help, help. I need help. So a security guy heard me, walked me over to emergency room, and they, they did some quick tests, and they discovered immediately I was having a full-blown panic attack, and they gave me uh, a two-milligram alprazolam pill, which is frequently used for um, panic situations, and I carry them in my purse 24-7 because if I need to use it, um, one can actually, in a full-fledged panic attack, you can lose control of your bowels and your bladder. Fortunately, in neither of my situations has it happened. I'm not saying it won't ever happen. Um, but I try to face the thing that gives me panic attacks. And one of the way I handle it, to the best of my ability, I, I, have, I have the excuse of the dog. Um, so I get in the elevator right away, and I tuck myself in the front left corner. And that way I'm right by the door and I tuck my dog over in the corner so he can't sniff and stuff. So it's actually a dual benefit. And I feel a lot more in control that way because, well, I guess I feel it, but there's no reality to it based on what happened in Denver. I didn't have control to open the door, but when I was starting to have my attack, the, the elevator dude, and that's what he was, an elevator dude, he was Anyway, he immediately opened the door because he went in, then he had to call someone to call the elevator downstairs. And I, he opened the door until they called the elevator, then he closed it. And I was perfectly fine. So um, I just can't emphasize enough that these are not choices for those of us on this panel. We see a lot of this in homelessness and people say, well, if they just quit drinking and doing drugs, they can afford something. They don't have yeah. that choice. Yeah. They don't have that choice. Um, you might ask, how did we get to where we are if we don't have that choice? And I'm going to tell you, in my personal journey with alcoholism, I got to where I was through God. And that is my personal experience. I woke up one day and I said, I'm done drinking. And I couldn't do it on my own. I ended up drinking two days later and I found myself in an AA meeting the very next day. And I'll tell you a real side story that's really funny. I decided my first day of really, really quitting drinking when I couldn't do it on my own was going to be on Louis Braille's birthday because I wanted to always remember my birthday. Well, if you're in any 12-step program, I don't care if you're a birthday, your, your anniversary dates, we call them birthday of sobriety or whatever, um, nobody ever forgets it. Nobody ever forgets it. I thought I would, but you know, we remember that the rest of our life. Thank you. So I think it's only fair um, that I share some of my experience as well. And, and I've spoken about some experiences on, on the earlier shows. And, um, I, you know, I came from a family that has um, 
abuse of, of substance and alcohol um, on both sides. I, I mean, you can't shake the tree without, you know, tons of, of, of uh, abuse oranges falling off the branches. And um, I played baseball. I was involved in everything. I was involved in everything I could possibly be involved in, including working one, if not two part-time jobs on top of it all through high school. I, and I counted the days until I could get out until I could get in and be free. And I, and I knew that once I left for school, um, in fact, I, I was told by one of my parents, once you left, once I leave for school, you better make it work because you know, when, when you go, there's nowhere to come back to. Um, <laughs> and so I, you know, I got to school and I was playing ball and I was making all these amazing friends, um, making good grades. Life was going on without all of the, things that I had to lie about, about all the things that I had to, you know, work around and pretend that they didn't exist. And and most of it was me pretending that the feelings that I had about those things weren't there. And so I found myself Christmas season in a Macy's in one of the biggest malls on the East, on the East coast um, in Long Island. And I was in the Macy's, which is one of my favorite places to shop because when, uh, you know, when you hit those clearance sections in Macy's, man, you can find some good stuff. But I digress as I'm known to do. All of a sudden, I started getting hot and my vision started to blur. And it wasn't headaches per se. It was this weird feeling of like pound. Like I heard the blood in my ears. I heard the blood in my brain and this weird feeling of like going in and out of I was still standing. I didn't fall over, but I was sweating profusely. I felt like I was going in and out of consciousness and I didn't know how to get out. I I knew where I was intellectually. I knew exactly where I was. I didn't know how to get out. I didn't know what was happening to me. And a very, very kind person, you know, took me by, by the hand, by the elbow. I, I was, had sight at that point. Um, you know, took me by the hands and the elbow, pulled me out of out of the main area where there were so many people into a smaller little section, talked to me for a few minutes and literally drove me to the emergency room. Um, and from there, uh, I went to to student counseling, like I had said earlier in the program. And, and I spoke to somebody for 13 minutes and walked myself out with a, with a nice prescription of Xanax. And that was supposed to cure all my problems. And um, I quickly realized that wasn't going to work for me. Um, that was my first round of therapy. And I learned a lot about myself, a lot about the triggers, a lot um, about the things in my past that I had avoided and realized that uh, if I continue to avoid them, I, I always turned it as though I put it in a glass box or a glass jar on the shelf. I know it's there and someday I'll take it down and I'll really do what needs to be done with it, but I've got more important things to take care of. So it'll stay in the pantry until I'm ready to deal with it. Well, eventually the pantry for me overflowed, the door burst off its hinges and, and I had to start taking these jars out, looking at them. Um, like I said, I've returned to therapy twice since then for, and honestly, none of it was for any traumatic experience or any, I just realized that I wasn't doing well. Um, I wasn't treating myself well. I wasn't treating others as well as I'd like to. And so I returned for therapy. And some of the listeners may know I, I just lost my mom and, and there's been some stuff. And I am seriously contemplating returning to therapy again just to unpack some of the stuff and make sure that I'm good. 
So that is my story. Um, I want to ask one roundtable question that we can all kind of chat about and then open it up for questions. So Byron, and I don't know, maybe the next 10 minutes or so, we're going to start opening up for questions. And feel free, any one of the panel members jump in first and, and we'll go around about it. But I was wanting to talk a little bit about the 12-step program, therapy, etc. You have to unpack the emotions. It's You can't just focus on, quote-unquote, the problem or, quote-unquote, the issue. You have to unpack the emotions. So somebody take the lead and go. I, I'd like to jump off with this real quickly and just tell a quick story about the 12, um, the, the big book in AA. I have a friend of mine who's in um, Al-Anon, and she was at a lecture at UC Davis, and this person spent the whole time talking about mental health, and in the very end, presumably this person is not in a 12-step program, they're a psychology professor, held up the AA big book and said, throw out all of your other self-help books. This is the only book anyone needs. So what that says, and, and I want people to get this, um, the AA big book is a great um, dictionary for how to your, live your life, period, whether you have an addiction or not. And I know many of people who have read it and it's really helped them. And then I want to add one more thing. Besides the addictions and the mental health disease you're hearing here, we're all familiar with PTSD. And that, you know, my, my anxiety came out of a PTSD episode. Or I have a, my, my, PT, my anxiety is secondary to PTSD in, in elevators. And PTSD happens not only to veterans. Years ago, we used to think it did. It happens in a lot of situations today. Um, there's Gamblers Anonymous, there's, um, I'm not sure I have this exactly right, but there's Overspenders Anonymous, Debtors. Um, um, and I'm not sure I have this name right, but there's um, Oversexed Anonymous, and, and that is really, again, I, I hope people aren't laughing at that, because there are people who really are driven by their need to have some form of sex. And when you're driven by that 24-7, you got to do something about it. So there's a lot more 12-step um, programs than what we're mentioning here. That's what I wanted to contribute. Thank you. Okay, this Thank is you. Lucy. Um, I just wanted to say, first of all, that Recovery, I just want to stress this, recovery is a lifelong <clears throat> process. You are never recovered. You are always in recovery once you accept that. And um, I think that's something that some people don't realize. And secondly, many, many of us who are in recovery because of addictions or compulsions also suffer from chronic depression and low self-esteem, which can contribute to our addiction. Um, so therapy is a big part of recovery also, which I, I totally believe, along with your 12-step program. Um, so that's what I have to say. Anthony, this is Pam. I think I'm the one that goes back to therapy every six weeks. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, for, for me, I'm fortunate to have a therapist who ends with leaving the door open because recognizing that there may be experiences in my life. And for me, what I have learned is to 
um, recognize what I'm getting ready to go into before it's full blown. That was yes. one of the things I wanted to work on. What are Me my too. symptoms? Yes. Um, when is it time to not be afraid to do it? One of the things that helps me in the 12-step program is because, again, it, it's the stigma, you know, what will people think? But another one that comes up when you have this kind of community is the experience of not being judged. You know, that you can say something and you don't get that, oh, you, you know, or anything like that. Because in, in these kinds of situations, we all have our stories, and we all have those things that we are ashamed of, and we all have those things that we, we have hidden, sometimes even from ourselves. And it's a very yes. gutsy move to go yes. into an environment and start sharing that. Even when people are one-on-one -on -one with a therapist, it's not easy. But you know that you have group support. You know that you have people who understand. You know that there you have people who have been there. And I can tell you it is very rare when I'm in – any type of meeting like these, I, you know, you think you've heard it all and then somebody will share something and you say, wow, not in a judgmental way, yeah. but it's just that people have their thing. And sometimes if you know people, um, you have this feeling of that person, that person, which for me uh -huh. is a good feeling because it means we're in this together. So that's yep. my thoughts about um, emotions. It's 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 tough. Anyone else before we? All right. I'm wondering um, if anybody on this call thinks it would be a good idea to maybe do a community call once every two weeks or once a month. Um, maybe doing something like the big book for a better life, not necessarily based on or not basing the call necessarily on um 12 steps itself but just reading the book and talking about it and how we can apply it to our lives in general for ideas on making our lives better i don't think that there's a single person on this planet who can really stand there and say their life there's no way their life could get it yeah, well maybe i don't know maybe madonna but um anyway, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, she'd be right maybe, i don't know, you know she, she would benefit you, too <laughs> <laughs> but uh, what do you what do you guys think about possibly um, opening up a big book call? I think it's a possibility. I think it's, Stability. you know, because like I say, you know, I, I did make comment that, you know, step four, it would be beneficial to everybody taking a personal moral inventory. So um, I, I think the big book could relate to a lot of aspects of people's lives. Yeah. One of the things to think about whenever we're talking about this, whether it's a 12-step program or whatever we're doing, there is no one size that fits all. That's right. So we yes. have to be open to those who will say that would benefit them and to others who might say that isn't for me. Um, you know, we have, like I said, no one size fits all. I can specifically say that even when we're talking about diets, for example, in Overeaters Anonymous, we do not prescribe any specific diets okay because awesome. we're not a diet yeah. program per se and again one size doesn't fit all i think some people might benefit from a big book bible study for others it might be too much without mm -hmm. the backups because some mm -hmm. things come up and mm -hmm. we want to make sure that we are keeping people safe and that we have um, places you know for them to go if they need it that's a really good point. Thank you for actually bringing that up. Thank you, Pam. Thank you, Pam. All right, Byron, 
let's take a look and see how many hands we have and um, open it up for a larger roundtable discussion. All right. We have a lot of hands, but before we do that, uh, I didn't get a chance to play the uh, promo uh, for oh, the yes. scholarship. We'll so take a quick break and be right back. All right. On November 8th, join the ACB Scholarship Committee for an information event at 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific, and 3 p.m. Hawaiian time. The ACB Scholarship Program application period is now open. The application period will be open from November 1st, 2021 to February 14th, 2022. To find out more, tune in to ACB Media 6 or join the Zoom room. For more information about the ACB Scholarships, visit www.acb.org scholarships. And we're back with Sunday edition. I'm Anthony Corona. I am co-hosting today with Margie Donovan, who put in a lot of work to make this show happen. We really feel like this is a very important discussion to have. If it shines a light for just one person, I think I did my job. And I know a lot of people say that, but I really do live it. I want folks out there to have more compassion, to have more understanding to those who are struggling and to those that are struggling in the dark, in silence. I hope you get just an iota of of bravery or a nudge or something from today. And so, Byron, let's open this conversation up. Who's first? Carol, I'm going to ask you to unmute and ask your question. Thank you. What a wonderful session. I'm, I've been in tears every once in a while. I'd like to just add, my name is Carol M. And there are other, just a couple of things. And then I would like to ask if I may read the 12 steps. We've not heard them. We've been heard them mentioned. And I just wondered if I could repeat them. Sure. Let's um, go Let's go straight to that. Yeah. Okay. I will do that. Um, and I will do this just without um, any, any reference to any particular addiction or anything. Um, the 12 steps. Step one, we admitted we were powerless and that our lives had become unmanageable. Step two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understand him, God. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Six, we're entirely ready to have God remove these defects of character. Seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Ten, continued to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Eleven, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. And 12, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to others and to practice these principles in all our affairs and I would just add, there are many, many 12-step programs. I personally have to happen to be a member of Debtors Anonymous. There's Gamblers Anonymous. So it's not always a substance, per se, based um, issue. Right. And um, 
I just want to thank you all and God bless. Thank you. Thanks, Carol. Thank you so much. That was very, very, very helpful. Thank you. Thanks, thank Carol. you. Who, who's next? That Byron? was wonderful, Carol. Thank you. All right. Coming up next, we have Judy. Judy, go ahead and unmute and ask your question. I uh, just, uh, ladies, thank you so much for sharing your stories. I have a question for my friend Lucy. It has to do with being a um, functioning alcoholic because you said that you'd never lost your employment. I believe when I was working, I worked with at least three functioning alcoholics. They never called out sick. They were never late. They did their jobs. One was a supervisor. One was a manager. So I'm just wondering, did you ever feel when you were in your addiction that you were kind of like getting away with murder because you didn't, you never got fired, I'm assuming. And like, or did you ever confide in anybody when you thought you might've had an issue? Like, you know, just, I'm, I'm curious about that. No, I actually never felt that way because um, I had not accepted my addiction. When mm -hmm. you're in the throes of it, you do not think that you're an addict. You, you know, and I, I will say that I used every sick day I could <laughs> from, mm, yeah. from hangovers or withdrawal from I, narcotics when I didn't out. have them I was physically sick and mm. so you will do anything and talk to anyone to try and get them yeah um yeah. so yeah I used every sick day I, I had um so so yeah I I uh I never felt like I was really getting away with anything. I was only taking what I was entitled to. Yeah. yeah and I felt, I felt, you know, I felt at the time that I was performing my job adequately and probably even felt that I was performing it above average, you know, above yeah. adequately. And I mean, I don't, I don't think I, I uh, slighted anyone because of it or anything like that. But after I went through treatment, I thought, oh boy, you know what, you you dodged a bullet here. You're, yeah. you're really lucky that you uh, that you didn't screw up and you didn't lose your job. So yeah, yeah. Thanks. I, I would Thank like you. to Thank add to that if I may. May I add to that? Sure. Um, there are many types of drinkers. There's a periodic. There's a weekend. There's all day every day. There's the evening. That was me, the evening drinker. Uh, the all day every day. They actually will start drinking in the morning. They will have a cooler in the car. They'll go out on their breaks, whatever. Um, so people think of alcoholics as always being drunk. And um, I was, ne I never drank during the day. I, I, as a matter of fact, even when I was very young and we'd go out, work with special needs kids and we'd go out Friday night before the dance and all have dinner, I'd be the only one of the staff that wouldn't drink because that's a huge responsibility. As an alcoholic, I did not drink because I, you know, but again, Again, my drinking got much worse much later in life. Um, I also worked with people who you knew were drunk. Um, you know, there, there were people that would be asleep under their desk. Mm -hmm. And um, the beautiful thing about this, and I don't know about all employers, but in the federal government, you get a warning and you can use um, employee education service to go through a detox program or to take some time off to handle your ism. We call these isms, alcoholism, you know, that yeah, type of yeah. thing, um, which is really helpful. And, and so there are avenues to get the help before you lose your job. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. There's a lot of companies have what they call employee assistance programs as well. Yeah. Yeah. And those are all anonymous. If you make that phone call, if you take that step, 
you are guaranteed through um, legislation and things that you it is anonymous. It will not be mm-hmm. shared with your employers, with with you know anybody. Um, Byron, let's in the sake of uh, for the sake of time, how many more hands do we have, and let's have the next person. Okay, the next one that we have is uh, Melody. Melody, feel free to unmute and ask your question. Hi. Hello. My question is for Pam. Mm-hmm. Um, Pam, I know if you uh, if someone struggles with alcoholism, they can go to AA. If someone struggles with depression, they can do counseling and medication. But what is the recommended um, recovery program or therapy for overeaters? Um, Is it something that you feel, I mean, I know Lucy said you're never recovered. You're always in recovery. And you feel that there are days when you have licked that problem and then other days when you backslide or I know, you know, for an alcoholic, they try never to drink again. Mm -hmm. Um, So I just wonder how it is with overeaters, how that works. Yeah. You raise an important issue and thanks for the question actually, because even though overeaters is a 12 step program, there are some differences because of what we were talking about earlier about, you know, how food addiction and compulsive overeating poses some unique challenges, okay? So realistically, if you, if you are a true compulsive overeater, you will have to deal with that the rest of your life. And one of the ways you do that is a change in lifestyle. But also what you would do is you would still, we call it work, the 12 steps. So you're still going to be going through them um, to keep yourself, you know, in maintenance and stable and also coming up with new ways to handle stress and things of that nature. Now, again, as we said, everyone is still different. So some people are referred by a therapist, but not all therapists are 12-step therapists. So they will treat people as you would, you know, with normal therapy sessions. Other people who are therapists use the 12 step. It's almost like an adjunct, you know, like an add-on to what they're doing in, in therapy. So it would depend still on you. Someone mentioned sponsorship, and that's what happens partially through a sponsor who's going to help you to see what is going to work best for you. Because after all, it is your life. And again, we don't all get there on the same road, but the beauty of it is we get to travel, we get to have this journey together. Hope that helped you. Thank you. You're welcome. <clears throat> Melody, I, um, there is a NARC anon for family members of drug addicts. I attended an Al-Anon group way back in 2005 before Hurricane Katrina at the Stonewall Columbus LGBTQ Center on High. They no longer have it. I'd also gone to one AA meeting in the state hospital. I've had 32 hospitalizations, 16 therapists since 94. I've done a lot of the IOPs, intensive outpatient, partial programs, almost every med of every class on the market. I have several comorbid mental health disorders and some addictions that would not most likely be recognized. And what I find being in the 4% 
severe persistent mental, I don't like to use the term, but illness and not knowing I was going to remain here. There are not a lot of resources for people who have other types of physical and developmental disabilities and medical conditions as far as how we can effectively use treatment. And it's not thought that a blind person can experience schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder, bipolar, the dissociative disorders, anxiety, the PTSD, OCD, anything like that that I have, the personality disorders. And it's, I do get, you're just unhappy because you're blind. No, my existence depends on this. It's the response to it. The response to me as a lesbian, the continued traumas that I go through. My question is, would the addiction group on Thursdays be welcoming for more than just the recognized gambling, sex, drugs, alcohol, those type things? Yes. Yes, I would say yes. Too. Yes, I would say yes. And, and you know, uh, join us, Melody. I mean, we we welcome anyone, you know, who mm -hmm. who struggles with addictions, compulsions. We don't we don't. Uh, yeah. And I, I appreciate your information on the narcs anon. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I did not know you. that. There's now a teen, also four teens of parents and grandparents mm -hmm. who are alcoholics, if anyone mm -hmm. has any kids in their life that may need that. I would love to be able to use these things to help since yes, they do affect our lives and we're not completely not symptomatic and we're often blamed for our symptoms. And let me also say that for our recovery group on Thursday evenings, we maintain a contact list and this is only for support Whenever you need someone, that contact list is always available to you if you want it. You can call one of us and we will be available to you for support. It's that, good that's to hear it. you, Lucy, the four of you. I, you're wonderful. I was glad to know that you would be on today. I'm glad to see you on Thank here, Melody. You. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. I just want to say if you're if you're in a relationship with someone, whether it's parents or grandparents or spouses or significant others, and you find yourself trying to get them to stop drinking by hiding their bottles, you can never hide their bottles enough because we alcoholics will do anything to get alcohol. And all you're doing is trying to stop us from drinking and you'll never be successful by hiding our stuff. And that's when you need that is a sign that it's time for Al-Anon or Narcanon or whatever. I also want to say there's a teen program in AA as well. Yeah. Yeah, I went to Alateen right. when I was a kid. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right, Byron, who's up? All right. Coming up next, we have uh, Melissa. Melissa, feel free to ask your question. Thank you, Byron. And uh, good afternoon, everybody. This is Melissa. Hi, my my good friend Hi. Sam and my friend Lucy. <laughs> Lucy. Hi there. Um, and Lisa, it's wonderful to meet you. And, and Margie, it's wonderful meeting you also. Um, <clears throat> but my I, I want to go in a different direction. Um, my grandmother was a severe alcoholic for over 30 years. She's passed from this earth now. She died in 2008 um, when I was still in high school. And I was, or no, 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 no. I, I was getting ready to start a new job and she passed away. She had no clue that I'd started this new job. And it was really sad for me um, that she didn't get a chance to know because we were so close, but um, she went, she was treated three times and she changed her life and started going to AA meetings. And I went with her when I went to visit her um, and they were just wonderful people. And my question to you, I guess, is when you would go to like the, support groups or the meetings 
how did they handle you as blind and visually impaired persons? Great, Great question. question. That could take Great another question. two hours. Great question. <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, you know, this is Pam, and, and one thing I would say, uh, and this is just the reality of at least for Overeaters Anonymous, every group, every meeting, we call them rooms sometimes, they can be very different. Okay, and I have found mm -hmm. that I've gone to some where they were very welcoming, very comfortable, didn't have others, and, and others where they panicked, you, you know, or, yeah. we, and, and by the way, that's a discussion that we even have on our calls, mm -hmm. okay, yes. about the experiences and how we were treated, how we felt. My experience has been, it depends on the group, and for one group, I stopped coming because I felt to some extent they were so preoccupied with my being yeah. blind that there was something getting lost. So I just mm -hmm. chose to go to another group. Mm -hmm. because, mm -hmm. And also, frankly, I didn't always want to talk about being blind. Right. right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, but overall, I still, and that's the beauty of having so many groups. You can yeah. switch and you don't have to do anything formal. You just show up. Absolutely. And most people uh, who do attend 12-step programs have what they call a home group. And that's the group that they attend the most often for the most part. And you, you may find yourself going to a lot of different groups to find a home group in a group you feel comfortable with. And I know before the pandemic, I had one with NA that um, I would often chair meetings. We would we would pick a chair once a month, and that person would chair uh, meetings. And uh, I right. think that made people feel a little bit more comfortable with mm -hmm. the fact that you know I don't I don't uh, you know. Uh, dwell on my my blindness as you know part of my addiction it's just part of who I am and right. they they didn't really dwell on my blindness as you know uh detracting from the fact that I could chair a meeting just as much as anyone else and do so. you use braille you to do that, Lucy? yes I do <laughs> oh you do okay well anyway yep. I, I have a training session I have to go to so I'm going to leave but Thank God bless so all of you Take you guys are Melissa. just wonderful people, and I love you all. And, you. Uh, and thanks, I, and Melissa. Anthony, Anthony, I love the idea of, of doing th that kind of call you were mentioning. Mm -hmm. I I, I kind of like the idea. Yeah, so. I think we want to we want to figure out how to make sure it's safe and supportive. But I I do like the idea as well. Yeah. Um. Okay. Thank you so much for that. Um. I do want to take one moment to to point um you know to put a point of of a personal preference in. Um, we've spoken a lot about the, our blindness not being, but for folks out there um, who might be feeling that their blindness is a primary cause of their depression or, or other isms, um, we by no means are saying that it can't be or shouldn't be, That's et cetera, correct. et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Every person mm -hmm. has their own journey, their own story. And so I just want to make sure that nobody feels um, anything by by those of us who have said it's not our blindness that we need right. to focus on. Um, that's that's true for me Anthony, as well. Anthony, I'm glad you made made that point because yeah. what's what I really think about is the reality that again we have come through some things to get here. Mm -hmm. Who I am today is not who I have always been. Okay, mm -hmm. and so the reality is that that's why we want to move away from anything that's judgmental. 
Because if a person says, I am out here struggling because I'm blind and what I'm finding myself doing is that I'm not going to be the person to say, you know, get over it. Mm -hmm. Go learn Braille and call Mm -hmm. it a day. I'm not doing that. Okay. (laughs) Or go get a dog. You know, I had somebody tell me one time that when she was having trouble with depression, she went to a therapist. The therapist told her, uh, go get one of them blind dogs. Oh, my gosh. So, no, no. These things can come. Whoever you are and wherever you are, the, the key is to get some help. Move away from even these labels. You know, sometimes there's harm even in the label. But if you are struggling with your blindness, and it is, and I will tell you straight up, this is just a Pam. Everything I do is impacted by my blindness in some way. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, so it's not a denial thing. What's happening? We just don't want people to get caught up in assuming that because you're blind, it is yes. automatically that's what's the biggest problem. It. Or yeah, yes. Pam, I right. so appreciate I, I, you saying that. Um, that it, this is Lisa that blindness affects everything you do because I do find that um, blindness affects my everyday existence Mm -hmm. and so it's so I want to tell those folks out there that say you know there's nothing that you can't there's nothing you can't do as a blind person that sighted people can do you know what I love the theory behind that there's almost nothing that I can't do. <laughs> but I'm not flying a plane. I'm not driving a car. So, you know, there are some things, you know, I can't pick a shirt out of the drawer. Of the, you know, I'm anal retentive. So all my V-necks are in one drawer, crew necks are another. I can't just pick it up and know that it's blue or it's pink mm-hmm. or it's green. You know, mm-hmm. so no, there are some things I cannot do. Um, I, how many more hands I, do we have real quick? Anthony? I would, yes, like ma'am. I would love to jump in and just address um, the question that was asked, because I have some different exper- experiences about, you know, how we are treated as blind people. Well, <clears throat> I'm treated differently at different meetings. My home group, after going for about four months, I would, we, we, we have a donation basket that goes around. We're self-supporting for our, our refreshments and things like that. And, um, I'm not going to get into all those details, but that basket kept passing me. And one day I raised my hand and I was absolutely in tears. And I said, am I not a good enough alcoholic to contribute to the basket? Nobody has ever brought it to me. From that day on, a bunch of women took me under their wing. They're my dearest friends to this day. And they make sure I eat that basket. In another meeting, you know, um, in another meeting, um, it was a very different kind of meeting. And the only way, one of the things we were required to do was service. And so I decided to be the greeter. And once I greeted, I stood at the door with my cane. I'd put my dog at my chair, under my chair, and I'd stand at my do- door. And as people come in, if I knew them, I'd say hi. If I didn't, I'd say, welcome. I'd say, are you new? They'd tell me who they were. And I was more welcome. And I, I still have a meeting I go to. And unfortunately, all of mine are still on Zoom. But uh, my Tuesday night meeting, the women there like me, but I'm not part of it. So that's becoming less and less and less of a priority meeting for me. I have, I have a saying, if, if, if walking into something, I'm not treated like other people are, or other women in particular, I would say, um, 
then I don't want to waste my time going there. But before I walk out, I'm going to try things. I'm going to try to be of service. I, you know, I made, I did coffee one time and our chair said I couldn't do it. And I said, well, I'm. You'll try to engage and make sure that your initial <laughs> impression isn't the full impression. I like that. Or is. Or is. Yes. 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 Thank so you. So thank you. I just wanted to put thank that you, up. Thank you. Thank you. Byron, how many do we have? How many hands do we have up now? We have two more. Um, next to Cheryl. All Hi, right. Cheryl. Thank you, ladies. Thank you, Anthony, for doing this. And um, uh, you guys are—you know—this is really special. I, I can't. Al-Anon is has always been a priority in my life, and because of twelve-step programs, when I lost began to lose my sight, it saved my life. Mm. And um, all I can say is that there are so many programs. There is a parking, what's called a parking lot, and it goes from midnight until 6 a.m. Eastern every single night, 12, seven days a week. And that covers uh, all the 12-step programs. I'll be happy to give out information at some, you know, contact Anthony, we'll get this to you guys. But anyway, um, the only requirement for membership of any of these 12-step programs, the only requirement for membership is the, re- is the desire to change. You know, right. it's a you, desire to change. Good point. Thank you. And Great point. some Thank of you. us, some of us have drank, you know, my, I was just a periodic, but I knew I could become like my dad. My dad said he was an alcoholic because he only drank beer. Me, I drank <laughs> a cocktail once in a while, you know, so I couldn't be an alcoholic, but, um, love you guys, support you. And, um, and thanks. Thank thanks for being Thank vulnerable. Thank thanks, you. Cheryl. Thank you. All right. Our last caller is all right we have a 714 area code i'm gonna go ahead and ask you to unmute hello everybody hello hello it's dj and um uh this was probably one of the more rewarding sessions i've ever been in for all kinds of reasons so i want to thank you uh, a lot thank you that's great thank you. that's what we wanted that's exactly what thank I you wanted. for listening yeah i'm gonna get margie thank the floor to take us out thank you. um today this has really been her show honestly i i'm really thrilled we were able to do it um there will be another um conversation next month talking about language and how words mm. can affect and hurt and how we can maybe uh, reimagine how we talk. But Margie, take us out for today. Thank you, Anthony. I, first of all, I really want to acknowledge um, our wonderful host behind the scenes, Byron Lee. Thank you so much. Anthony, <laughs> I am so delighted that you trust me enough to pick people to come and talk on, talk on these subjects. And I, I'm just so happy and I hope we do more of this because I'm gonna say it straight up. I know we have more people in ACB that have similar issues to at least one of us. And I hope that this has given you the thought and the tool to maybe jump into our 8 p.m. Eastern time meeting on Thursday nights. <laughs> and I do want to say one other thing that I think is really important to point out here. All these um, isms and mental health issues, we just happen to be women on this show. They're just as prevalent in oh, men. Yeah. And I hope if we do another show that we can bring some men into it that's that's got mental health disorders and stuff. And I ask our ACB family to take the information you got today 
and embrace each and one of us for our, our vulnerability and our honesty. And please do not walk away and judge us. Thank you so much. Um, Margie Pam, will you be having, um, I, I know that you don't primarily do topics, but will you be having any meetings focused on the holidays and, and how, you know, the holidays are hard for a lot of folks that are dealing with items? <laughs> We actually yeah, do do yeah. topics, um, and I'm sure as I'm sorry, Pam, let me let you go. Go ahead, sweetie. Yeah, um, the answer to your question is yes. We're looking at something called Thriving Through the Holidays. It'll be a community call for the big community because all of cool. us have something we can learn. But as far as our recovery calls go, we just ask people if, if they, they have topics up, yeah. related to their sobriety. Um, we just kind of take any topic that, that seems mm -hmm. to come up at the meeting. We don't really have any themes per se yeah and the but other one will come up I'm oh sure. yeah 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 <laughs> yeah the holidays sure. will come up and oh the definitely other important, the other important thing it's very important to know i don't care if thursday is christmas maybe not everybody be there but there's never a break from an aa meeting whoever shows up shows up all it mm -hmm. takes is two people to have a meeting mm -hmm. awesome well, ladies, um, I, I've said the word brave and I mean it. I know that some of you don't want to be called brave, but um, to come out on a media network and, and have this conversation is brave. So thank you for helping for the me. Opportunity. Yeah. Thank you yes. so much. Thank you. Byron, as always, um, I'll hear you in an hour, but um, thank you as always <laughs> for being an incredible behind the scenes co-partner parent person a, a parent whoa whoa <laughs> <laughs> and i will be back next sunday Dad with flip. a wonderful <laughs> show all about our audio description audio description gala and um, there might just be a couple of famous voices so one hey. o'clock acb media one next <laughs> sunday have a great week, everybody. You too. Thank you too, you Anthony. Thank, Thank you, Thank everybody. Okay, bye, Margie. You. bye, Margie. <laughs> bye, Margie. Have a great day. You've been listening to Sunday Edition with Anthony on ACB Radio Mainstream. For more information, questions, comments, feedback, suggestions, etc., please email Celebration AC. That's the word Celebration with the letters AC at AOL.com. Look forward to hearing from you and let's brunch again next Sunday 